All right, so we are in our second week of our current sermon series called Ready for War, Accessing Our Spiritual Resources for Christian Living. And last week we talked about our spiritual strength. This week we're talking about our spiritual armor. So if you are a person this morning who has endeavored to place your trust, your hope, your security, your future in Jesus, you know, both for this life and, God willing, the one to come, what we learned last week is that there's a little bit of, might I say it, bad news that comes along with that. And that is that there is an enemy, and he has his crosshairs on you. And so the more you grow in your relationship with Jesus, the more you participate in the kingdom of God, the more you participate in your citizenship of the kingdom of light that is encroaching on the kingdom of darkness, the more you will be targeted by the enemy. And so in, the, in Paul's closing paragraph of his letter to the church in Ephesus, he tells them in verse 10, he says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And then in verse 11, he says, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Do you want to stand firm in your faith in Jesus? in the face of an onslaught of spiritual enemies. Here, this week, in our passage this morning, Paul tells us in detail how we do that, how we stand firm. But not just stand, not just survive, not just be left standing at the end of the battle, but to withstand. That word in verse 13 means to resist. So we don't just stand, we actually take ground for the kingdom of God. So the question is, why does Paul use this illustration? You know, what's the deal with armor? Why why is that a helpful way to think about our Christian life? Why doesn't he say, you know, put on the robe from God, put on the jumpsuit from God, put on the onesie from God? Armor is not just one piece. It's not a one-size-fits-all bodysuit. These are unique, specific pieces. It contains many pieces. And as we learned last week, Satan and our spiritual enemies, they have a lot of different ways that they attack. They have a lot of different ways that they seek to undermine our hold on Jesus Christ. And not just our hold on him, but our willingness to walk in his ways, to walk in his mission, to participate with him in what he's doing. So because Satan has a lot of different ways to attack, we need a lot of different defenses. We need each piece of armor. So Paul's final exhortation here is to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might in order that we might stand. So today, we're going to jump into verse 14 through 17, and we are going to learn how it is that we stand. We stand by putting on and taking up 
each piece of the armor of God that he has graciously given us by the Spirit. We put, up, we put them on and we take them up. All right, let's go ahead and read it and then we'll pray and dive further in. Starting in verse 14, Paul says, Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for providing all that we need in order to stand firm in Jesus Christ. I pray that your word would speak, would, would do the heavy lifting this morning, would penetrate into our, into our inner being, and Lord, provide not just intellectual, mental beliefs and doctrines, but, but a real convincing, a real persuasion that you have provided all we need, that you are all we need. And we just give you our time this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so Paul's basic desire for these Christians and all Christians is that they would be able to stand against the attacks of the enemy. So Paul says the word stand four times in these few verses. He says to stand in verse 11. He says to withstand. And then he says to stand firm. And finally, here at our introduction in verse 14, he says, therefore, stand. So for the rest of this passage, Paul is going to unpack it, it, how it is that we stand. He says stand, and then he says, here's how. And every verb that comes after the word stand in verse 14 modifies the standing. He says stand. Having done this, having done this, taking this up, doing this, having done this, it all modifies stand. This is how we stand. And he says, stand therefore. You know, and that points back to the battle that we talked about last week. So for us today, you know, in 2022, almost 2023, how can we stand firm in our Christian faith? And not just the doctrines, not just the teachings, but how do we stand firm in Jesus? How can we stay following Jesus as his disciples? How can we continue on the path toward Christ in this life and in the life to come? Why do we even need to ask that? Because people all around us are giving it up. They're giving up their faith in Jesus. So how do we cling to it? You know, Paul tells us, we only stand firm in Jesus when we walk through a battle. That's our route. And that's hard. That's painful. And so he lists six pieces of armor which represent the ways, the means by which we can stand. And this battle is raging hot. And we said in verse 12, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And of course, in verse 11, against the very schemes of the devil himself. 
So because of this war that is raging, if you guys have seen The Matrix, you know, the Neo or whoever is standing sort of in a white, empty setting, and he says, give me, give me something for... Give me something for trolls. I don't know what he says. Give me something for raging like giant machines. And then like aisles and aisles and aisles and aisles of weapons just go. And it's just like, oh, yes. And he just like loads himself up. It's like a Christian is standing and says, give me something for the schemes of the devil. And then the armor of God just goes. And just stands right in front of him. And you're like, okay, here it is. And Paul says, okay, let me walk you through each piece and what it's for. Remember, each piece of armor here that Paul describes is from God. He says, put on the full armor of God. Be strong in the Lord, in the strength of his might. These, as we saw in Isaiah, way back, hundreds and hundreds of years before this was written, these are the weapons, these are the pieces of armor that God himself wears in battle. And he puts them on his chosen Messiah as well. And now they've been handed down to us. Each one, an aspect of God's strength, of God's power, of his character. So, and just like we put on the new self created after the likeness of God, in verse 24 of chapter 4, we need to remember The armor is from him. It's straight from him. It's from his hand. So Paul categorizes this armor in two categories. He says, put on, and he says, take up. So armor that we put on, we can can sort of split these into two groups. You know, armor that strengthens our God-given identity. You know, armor that we put on, that we wear, And then armor that we take up. Armor that empowers our God-given activity. So we have armor that represents our identity in Christ, that fully and completely protects us from the enemy's schemes, and armor that we take up and we use in our activity that Christ has given us to do that also fully and completely can handle the enemy's schemes. The armor that we take up is sort of like, you know, after we get dressed, there are things that you grab on your way out. Things you might need for that day. An umbrella, your keys, chapstick, I don't know. Something that you're like, oh, I need that today. So he starts with our put-on armor, our identity armor in verse 14. He says, stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. So the three pieces of armor that we put on, our identity armor, are the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, and our gospel shoes. (laughs) So first, the belt of truth. He says, having fastened on The belt of truth. And this word fastened on, it's, it's, it's kind of like the belt I'm wearing, but it's more than that. It's, it's a girding of yourself and a, a complete, uh, just full, basically without it, everything would fall apart. 
You know, if I take off my belt, I might be uncomfortable and like, ah, I need a belt. But like my clothes aren't going to fall off. But this belt of truth holds all, it, all of it together. And that makes sense. That truth is a great piece of armor to start with. Why? Because as we found out last week, the overarching strategy of the devil is what? To lie. You know, everything the devil does can be under the headline of a lie. Every little way that he works. You know, Satan lies about God and about his existence, about his character, his goodness. Satan lies about you, to your face, about your identity, about your dignity, about your status as a beloved child of God, forgiven, cleansed, loved. Satan says, no, no. He lies about life. He lies about how life should work, how, what the good life looks like. So how do we fasten on the belt of truth? How do we gird ourselves with truth, as Paul says? Where do we find truth? This is a big question these days. What are our sources? <laughs> if we rewind a chapter or two, Paul says in chapter 4, verse 20, he says, but that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Wow, that's an audacious claim. He says the truth is in Jesus. It just is. And Jesus said the same, right? He said in John 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So one way that we fasten on truth is by trusting in Jesus, right? And then during Jesus' last meal with his disciples before his death, Jesus calls the Holy Spirit the Spirit of truth. In his upper room discourse in John 14 through 17, he promises the Spirit he says, you need the Spirit. He says, it's good that I go away so that you can get the Spirit. The Spirit is the Spirit of truth. And then Paul refers to the gospel as, in uh, chapter 1, verse 13, as the word of truth. The gospel of your salvation. The gospel is the word of truth that sets us free. You know, Jesus says, the truth will set you free. And then, many places, but Paul refers to all of Scripture in Timothy as the word of truth. So, we have Jesus Christ, the truth. We have the Holy Spirit, the spirit of truth. We have the gospel, the word of truth. And we have all of Scripture, which is also the word of truth. So, how do we gird ourselves with truth? Well, we entrust our lives to Jesus. We receive the Holy Spirit. And we build our lives around what? Around Jesus' word. That trumps all other sources, all other media, all other left-wing, left-wing, right-wing news sources. All of it comes under the authority of Jesus, the Spirit, and God's word as the truth. 
This is where we find our identity. This is how we build our lives around what God has said, not what, how we feel, not what the world says or what the enemy says. That's why Paul opens up this wardrobe of armor with truth. Because truth is what wraps it all together. You remove truth, and it's twisted. And that's what the enemy does best. Now, who are you? You are loved. That's who you are. Who is God? He's your creator. He loves you. He died for you. What does the good life look like? The good life looks like partnering with God in every possible way that you can. The good life looks like joining your life to God's life because he's the only true source of life. That's how you gird yourself with truth. Okay, so we fasten on the belt of truth. Now, how else do we stand? He says, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Breastplate. Pretty obvious what this is. Breastplate covers your most important and most vulnerable organs, your lungs, your heart. And these breastplates would extend all the way down to your waist so it protects your, even the organs that don't have a natural protection. So the breastplate of righteousness. So what righteousness are we talking about? Is this our righteousness? You know, do we cover ourselves with our own righteousness as we go into battle? Or is this God's righteousness? Let me read you an excerpt from the passage we took a glance at last week in Isaiah chapter 59. Isaiah says, The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. The breastplate of righteousness here is a really, really nice hand-me-down. You know, we like hand-me-downs in my house. Uh, we're the youngest, my wife and I, and so we've got lots of older cousins that that hand clothes down to our kids. And one of them, Scout, for whatever reason, her grandparents on the other side buy her really, really nice clothes. Like, she wears them once, she's done with it. And, like, sometimes we get, like, five bags of hand-me-downs from Scout. And we're like, we just struck gold! Because these hand-me-downs are nicer than anything we would even buy brand new. And that's, that's what we have in the breastplate of righteousness. It's God's really, really nice, much better than anything you could come up with, hand me down. This is Jesus' righteousness that we wear. You know, Paul tells the Corinthians, God made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. And then he tells the Galatians that those who were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So the breastplate that covers our most sensitive areas 
is brought to you by Jesus Christ himself. It's his righteousness. But the cool thing about Jesus' righteousness that we put on is it changes us. We're not just wearing Christ. We're becoming more like Christ. We can walk into battle confidently knowing that we're wearing the best hand-me-down breastplate ever. Not some knockoff that we made. It's the real deal. And it's the real deal that changes us. It changes us into people who can do righteousness. So we find our identity in the truth of God and his word, which tells us we have been given Jesus' righteousness. And finally, we get our identity in our ability to stand from the gospel. Let's look at verse 15. He says, And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. So this is an interesting sentence. He never says the noun shoes here. It's all a verb. So what he says is, fasten or shod. If any of you use the word shod lately, have you shod your feet? That's what he says. He says, shod or shoe your feet with the readiness. Or another word is the preparation. Or another word is the firmness. Or the steadfastness. It's a little bit of a hard sentence to translate. Uh, But he says, wrap your feet with the readiness, the, the preparation of the gospel of peace. So commentators, you know, preachers over the centuries have been like, what? What is he saying? You know, know, is he saying like, Christians, you should be ready to share the gospel. Is that what he's saying? So he's not just saying, hey, Christians, you should be preaching the gospel. That's not just what he's saying. He is saying, yeah, as followers of Jesus, as people wearing the armor of God, you should be ready to go out into the mission of God, which is the propagation of the gospel. But you can only do that when you've been readied by the gospel. You notice he says, put on, where is it? Put on as shoes for your feet, put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. The gospel provides readiness, okay? So this verse answers some pretty important questions for us, especially for us modern American Christians. You know, this verse answers the question, ready for what? what? What are we being equipped for? What's the point in all this armor? You know, all wars are fought over something. Land, resources, etc. You know, what is this war being fought over? The war is being fought over what God is doing in the world. Okay? What is God doing in the world? Let's turn our Bibles to Titus. It's a few few, uh, books to the right. Let me find it first, and then I'll tell you where it is. It's right after Thessalonians and Timothy. So all the T's. So Titus chapter 2. What is God doing in the world? Let's read Titus 2, verses 11 through 14. Paul says, 
For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Now that's one long Paul sentence saying what God is doing in the world. God is spreading the gospel. That's what God's doing. He, he's spreading the gospel of the kingdom of God. That the thing that needed doing to rectify the chasm that existed between humanity and God, the thing that needed doing has been done. And because of that, God is now at work purifying for himself a people. How do they become purified? Through the gospel, through Jesus' death and resurrection. That people is the church, those he draws to himself the bride of Christ, us, it's us, who are, what does it say, zealous for good works. This means we are excited to be about what God is about. Excited to partner with God in his priorities, what he is doing in the world, which includes the spread of the gospel, that the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of darkness has been in power up to this point, and now the kingdom of light is at hand. That's what Jesus went about preaching. He said, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. It's here. Good news. There's a new ruler in town. This ruler loves you. He wants to redeem you. He wants to transform you. He wants to rescue you from the inside out. And you can be a citizen of that kingdom. That is what God is doing. And that is what we get to participate in. So how, how is this the gospel, though, of peace? He says, the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Now in chapter 2, Paul just dove in to the reality of the peace that Jesus himself and him alone achieved. He says that in Jesus' death and resurrection, Jesus, it says, Jesus killed hostility. He killed hostility between both humanity and God as well as between humans and humans. Hostility between human beings should be over because of what Jesus has done and taken on his own body. So when we believe the gospel of peace, it changes us. It, it not only changes us because we're forgiven, though it does, it not only changes us because now we're willing to forgive and we have the resources to forgive, but it does. It changes our priorities. The readiness that is given by the gospel makes us ready to participate in the spread of this gospel of peace. Paul says, get your feet strapped in that readiness. When the gospel of peace is our foundation for living, you'll be ready for action. 
and you will be free, free of distraction. You will be free. You will be ready to forgive silly conflicts. You will be ready to forgive resentments. You will be ready to let go of bitterness. And you'll be ready to participate. So we shoe our feet. We, that, that means we're ready to go. We're no longer self-focused. We're no longer worrying about little things. We're worrying about the biggest thing. The thing that God is about. That's what this means. This is the last thing we do before going out the door. Like our girls, we say, okay, okay, shoes on and let's go. It's the last thing you do, right? And as ironic as it sounds, this gospel of peace is what this war is all about, right? And it makes, but it makes total sense that the mission of God, the, the very thing that God is focusing on in the world is where the battle is raging the hottest. And so as soon as Paul's done saying, put on this gospel readiness, he turns his attention to the battle at hand. You know, he pivots. He, he has just said, you know, put on, put on, put on. And now he says, take up. So we're moving from pieces of armor that signify our identity and move to pieces of armor that signify our activity in Christ. Starting in verse 16, he says, In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. The shield of faith. So, so far, up until this point, Paul has been drawing his parallels, his illustration from Isaiah. But the shield of faith doesn't occur there. And so what it seems like he's referring to or pulling from is the Roman soldier. And you guys have probably seen Gladiator and, and other movies. The shield that they have is ginormous. It's as big as a door. And it's curved. It's that shield. That's the shield of faith. Why do we need such a large shield? I always thought it was kind of weird. Like, that, seemed, that thing looks heavy. Like we said before, there's many Many, many arrows. Many ways that Satan attacks us. And here he mentions them. The flaming darts. The flaming arrows. These shields back in ancient times, uh, they were made primarily of wood, but on the front they would fasten on hides, like animal hides. But before they put them on or, or after they fasten them on, they'd soak them in water. Why? To extinguish flaming arrows. Because, okay, the arrow can, can hit my shield, but it's not going to engulf my shield. So do we need a lot of faith? Well, Jesus' apostles Ask that question. In, a, in the, the Gospel of Luke, it says, The apostles said to Jesus, Increase our faith, they said. And what did Jesus say? He said, If you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this tree, Be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. So, Jesus says, not, not really. 
You don't even need that much. But you do need to put it in the right place. You need to put it in the right person. Right? So what is faith? That's a word we, we hear a lot. It's a word we use a lot. But what does it mean? Well, Hebrews 11 gives us a nice little definition. Chapter 11, verse 1 says, here's what faith is. It says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So faith is the steady, confident, stubborn trust in the promises of God, even when you can't see them. That's what faith is. So is this faith to, you know, manifest the good things we want in life? Is this faith what we use to, to, to provide ourselves with healing and success that we want to see for ourselves in the world? Well, at the end of what uh, a lot of people call the hall of faith, you know, in, a, in a Hebrews 11, all of these heroes of the faith, you know, Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, David, the prophets, and he just keeps listing and listing and listing all of these people who trusted in the promises of God. What does it say about them? In Hebrews 11, it says, all of these people died in faith, not having received the things promised. Ouch! But it says, having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. So no, no. This is not a faith that necessarily pays big dividends in this life. This is a stubborn faith. A stubborn faith that refuses to let go of the promises of God even in the midst of significant and constant attack. Trust over time. The flaming darts still come. The arrows still stick. But they don't have to take you out. This is a faith that alongside Job, David, Jeremiah, and all of the most powerful words and people who lamented, who grieved, who cried out to God, sometimes without an answer, this is a faith that refuses to turn away from God despite the pain, despite the suffering, despite the frustrations, the questions, the doubts. This is the shield of faith. A stubborn clinging to Jesus against all odds. The shield of faith is us refusing to walk away from God. Whatever happens, come what may, I refuse to walk away from God. Even though every other signpost along the way is saying, just just take the off-ramp. The shield of faith says, I don't care what happens. I refuse to turn away from the person who alone has the words of eternal life. So he says, take up the shield of faith and take the helmet of salvation. Now, this is interesting because this is also a really, really nice hand-me-down, the helmet of salvation. The verse we read in Isaiah 59, uh, breastplate of righteousness, helmet of salvation. They go hand in hand. And yet, Paul says to take it up. He doesn't say put it on. He says, take it up. 
And of course, you know, this, this helmet of salvation is part of our identity. It is, of course. But I think what Paul is telling us here in saying, take it up, is because Satan, he saves his heaviest artillery for when we are in the middle of the action. You know, he doesn't wait till we, to, you know, he doesn't try and pick us off before we jump in. No, no. He waits till we jump in and then he, he launches his primary attack. And our taking up of the helmet of salvation is a reminder that we don't need to fear jumping in headfirst into the fray because we will be protected. We have the helmet of salvation after all. Even when the battle is fiercest, we can put on the helmet of salvation and withstand even the most deadly attack. We can withstand a headshot with the helmet of salvation. And finally, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. You probably noticed five out of six of these uh, pieces of armor are defense, and this one is our only offensive weapon. And remember, this is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. This is the only offense we have, but it's a good one. This is uh, Paul drawing again from Roman soldier times. This is a small sword, like a, like a hand-to-hand combat sword. But if any of you have watched uh, Princess Bride or other movies where they have sword fights, they don't hit with the sword the same way every time. There's so many different cool attacks, different attacks that you have to use to win. You can't use it the same way every time. The Word of God. It's so beautiful. He calls it the sword of the Spirit. Given by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit has provided for us the Word of God. This is all over the New Testament. The Holy Spirit is the one who who was at the side of those who were writing down Scripture, inspiring it. Uh, Paul says it's God breathed, the breath of God. The Holy Spirit is what made this thing happen. This is from Him. This means the Holy Spirit inspired the writing of God's Word into this book. You know, I want more Holy Spirit. I want more Holy Spirit in my life, in, my, in this church. But that always, always, always goes hand-to-hand with a further emphasis on the Word of God. Why is that? Because it's the sword of the Spirit. This is, this is what He gave us. So Paul tells us that our only offensive weapon is the Word of God. So what does that mean? It means a few things. It doesn't just mean one thing. Because when Paul uses the word, Word of God, he uses it of a few different things. But first and foremost, it means Genesis to Revelation. This is the Word of God. The entirety, the library of Scripture, 66 books. And how do we know that is one of our primary weapons? We have Jesus' example. You know, Jesus, before he started his sort of capital M ministry, was driven out by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted for 40 days, fasting, not eating or drinking. He's weak. He's vulnerable. That's when Satan meets him. And he provides three crazy hard temptations. 
you know, I read those and I'm like, that doesn't sound that hard. Like, I don't think I would want to throw myself off a building just to prove that God would save me. But Satan knew what would, what would be difficult for Jesus. And he launched it. He brought it. And what does Jesus do? With each temptation, he quotes Deuteronomy. He goes to the word of God. That's his counterattack. And it works. Satan flees at the end of it. So, we take ground with the sword of the Spirit, the word of God. We take ground for God's kingdom when we refute a lie and believe the truth. That's our bread and butter. Every day, every day there's an opportunity to refute a lie with God's word and to believe the truth and to walk in that freedom. But what else is the word of God? The word of God, as Paul said earlier, is the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. We take ground for God's kingdom when we tell others the gospel. And of course, the entire library of scripture points to Jesus Christ. He said, every word in here points to me, testifies of me. And so, the word of God, the gospel. The gospel is what transfers us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Mm. Sorry. The word of God. We're, we're about to get into it next week, but Paul just launches into an exhortation about prayer. He says prayer four different ways, and we're going to look at that next week. But prayer is one of the primary ways that we utilize this. We speak the word of God to God himself and to one another in prayer. Speaking God's word in prayer both back to him and to one another is a powerful weapon against the enemy's tactics. That's it. So it's those six weapons. It's those six pieces. This is how we stand against Satan's attacks. In the face of lies about God, ourselves, or others, we stand in the truth. We stand in the word of truth. In the face of condemnation, we stand in Jesus' righteousness. In the face of distraction or apathy, we remember how good the good news is. In the face of suffering, we desperately cling to God in faith. In the face of despair, we remember the joy of our salvation. And in the face of a multitude of voices, we read, we listen to, we speak, and we pray the word of God. These pieces of armor are his gifts. They're his gifts to you. They're his hand-me-downs. We can wear them with confidence. We can hold our heads high in the midst of all of the difficulties of life, of all the attacks of the enemy, knowing that we have been provided exactly and completely everything we need for life and godliness. We can cling to his promises because they are true and they will happen. Amen? Let's pray. Oh God, we're so grateful for, for the kind of a God that you are. Lord, when we're not in the, feeling the, the unicorns and the rainbows,
Lord, you want us to cry out to you. You want to hear our complaints. You want to hear our struggles. You want to hear our brokenness. You want to hear our sins. That's the kind of a God you are. You don't say, clean yourself up and then come back and and meet me with me tomorrow. You say, come to me now in the filth, in the difficulty, in the doubt, in the I don't feel God, in the I don't want you, God. In every situation, you say, come to me. Thank you for being that kind of a God. We're so grateful to worship that kind of a God. I pray for anybody here this morning who does not know the depth of the relationship with their creator that they can have through Jesus Christ. I pray that you would bring them into the kingdom of light this morning. If that's you, cry out to God. Before, before coming up and taking of communion, cry out to God and say, I am a sinner. I am broken. I don't know if I believe in you, but I, need, I know I need something. See if he doesn't answer you. Because he will. He says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone opens the door, I'll come in and dine with him. Thank you for being that kind of a God, Lord. Help us to worship you with our lives with our bodies, with our jobs, with our families, with our relationships, with our openness to forgive, with our willingness to extend uh, grace to those around us, with our eyes open to the needs of those around us. We just thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to spend some time worshiping the Lord.